to the mission the Father gave to you. Coming into this world to live for us so that you could die for us, so that you would be raised, conquering sin and death, and then be exalted to the Father's right hand. And from the Father's right hand, you, together with the Father, have sent the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and who is out in the world working before we even think to work, preparing people's hearts, opening their hearts, readying them for the gospel of liberation and freedom and forgiveness. Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we praise you and ask you again that you would receive these gifts and lay hold of our lives that through both this gospel would sound forth to the ends of the earth beginning here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to be seated, if you would. We will stand to read the scriptures in just a second. But I have a couple of introductions that I'd like to make. We don't usually do this kind of thing in the midst of the service, but but I don't want to do it at this point because there are some people to introduce to you. The first of them is Trevor Klutz, who is here. Uh, This is his first Sunday, and I hope not his last, to be with us. Uh, He plays the violin and the mandolin and the guitar and who knows what else. I hope we'll find out in the months to come. So, Trevor, it's really, really great to have you. Thanks for being with us. Trevor is a student at Vero Beach High School, a good friend of Jacob's, and uh, it's, it's great to have you. Um, the other folks I want to introduce to you, you, you were sort of prepped for last week. Um, my family is here, which is a glorious thing. And we've had, uh, we've had a whole week with some of them and part of a week with the rest of them. And they're all seated, seated over here, my three daughters, Katie and Annie and Leslie, and Leslie's husband, Brant, and two children, Ella and Olivia, and... Um, it's just been a fabulous thing to, to have them here. I hope you'll forgive me for indulging myself in introducing them to you. And, um, and then the, the last person to introduce is Katie's husband. It's, it's, it's still, you know, Leslie's husband. Katie's, I'm getting used to it. And I, and I like it. I like it. But it's great to, great to have uh, the opportunity to introduce my whole family to to you, and uh, to introduce um, Brent Webster to you, who is uh, a minister of the gospel in the Presbyterian Church in America, who is the campus minister at the University of California, Berkeley, with Reformed University Fellowship, which is our denomination's uh, campus ministry. Uh, we are on over 125 campuses across uh, this country. It is a growing and very significant ministry, um, and it is a, it's a real joy, uh, a privilege and a real joy uh, to be able to have Brent here uh, to preach the gospel to us uh, and to share with us just uh, for a couple of minutes the ministry that he and Katie are involved in uh, with RUF. So, Brent, if you would come and read the scriptures, and I'll invite everybody to stand. And um, thank you. Thank you. 
The scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 42 through Psalm 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. For the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take just a moment to pray. Father, I thank you for each person that is here this morning. Father, some of us are convinced of the things that we have been singing, the things that we have prayed. Some of us are struggling to believe that these things could be true. Some of us are convinced that we could never believe these things. Father, I ask that wherever we sit this morning and wherever we come from this morning, that you would speak to us. We need to know that you are a God who loves broken people, a God who loves to bring about true redemption. Father, I pray that you would indeed speak to us over these next 30 minutes, that you would speak to us in such a way that would bring us hope, that would bring us renewal, and that would change us um, for the glory of Jesus. 
We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can take a seat. And, you know, I should just say, some of you are probably wondering, gosh, he's preaching, preaching at his father-in-law's church. I mean, what's he feeling right now? And I'm just, uh, you know, the thought that has come in my head is, I- I'm just glad that I've already married his daughter. It's a done deal. You cannot undo it. It is finished. It's, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the work of Jesus. It is finished. And uh, there's nothing that you can do to change that. So, no, it's, it's, um, it actually is a real privilege for me to be here this morning for two reasons. One, uh, Katie and I were here last June. It was actually the first time that I met Mike and Barb, and it was a, it's a great experience. I thought I was going to throw up right before it happened, but it was going to be incredible. But we actually came uh, to see the new church. You guys were still worshiping at, at the middle school. And so for me, it, it's really a privilege to kind of be here and just see uh, what God is doing here in, in Vera Beach and at Christ the King. And secondly, it's a privilege for me to be here to share with you just a little bit about what God's doing in Berkeley. This is, uh, I just finished my fourth year as a campus minister there. And, you know, people often say, uh, uh, Berkeley, huh? That's, how's that going for you? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I have to tell you, you know, it, it's actually been incredible. It's been an amazing, it's been an amazing four years. And I remember uh, when I was first starting the ministry there four years ago, uh, receiving a letter from uh, a woman in South Carolina who said to me, this is what she wrote. She said, Berkeley, huh? Question mark. That word arouses the same emotions in me as the word cancer. And, and she was actually being completely serious. And, you know, I have to tell you, one of the things that I've, I've realized, just personally, for me personally, over the last four years, is that for all of the stigma and the perceptions that kind of go along with Berkeley as kind of this big bad, evil place that is opposed to Jesus. You know, I have to tell you that Jesus has deep affections for Berkeley. I mean, deep, deep affections. And, you know, I remember walking onto this campus four years ago, and I thought to myself, there are 35,000 students here, and I don't know a single one of them. You know, what, what am I doing? That was my thought. What am I doing? And, uh, you know, Berkeley is the number one public university in the world. I mean, I, I, I barely passed chemistry in high school. I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm a complete fish out of water with these people. They're, they're, they're brilliant. And yet watching over the last four years, God work in completely unexpected ways. I mean, it's just been, it has been an absolute thrill. And for me, a huge testimony to Jesus's determination to work in the least likely people. And so, you know, people often ask me, what do you, okay, so you're a campus minister. What does that mean? You know, what do you do? And then kind of what are your, what are your students like? So what do you do? Well, RUF, and, and Mike mentioned this, is uh, our denominational campus ministry. The PCA basically said, you know, college is a, is a huge time in life. It's an incredibly formative four years. In many ways, it's where life makes up its mind. People are trying to figure out what they believe. They're away from home, many for the first time. They're trying to figure out what their life is going to be about, what's going to be at the root of it. And so, you know, it's an incredibly formative time. And that's part of what I love about campus ministry. And so my job, essentially, 
is to pastor students. I mean, that's basically what I'm doing. It's not, it's not like my part-time job. It's not, you know, what I do on the side. I'm on the campus full-time, meeting with students one-on-one. Uh, we have small groups. We have a Thursday night weekly meeting that is very simple. We, we sing and I preach. And uh, it's, it's been, it has been beautiful, absolutely beautiful to watch Jesus change, change the lives of students there. And people say, okay, well, you know, what are Berkeley? You must kind of run into interesting students and people. And part of what I love about this really is the spectrum of students you get at, at Berkeley. You know, the first student that I met was a girl by the name of Rosanna Liu. And Rosanna uh, is Chinese. Uh, she, she graduated from Berkeley in three years, so she's sort of smart. And, and I got Rosanna's name, and, and Rosanna really is the reason uh, why RUF at Berkeley exists. I mean, God kind of crossed my path with, my path with this student, and she in, began to introduce me to other students, and things just kind of, you know, gradually grew from there. But Rosanna graduated from Berkeley, and this, you know, what I love about campus ministry is it's not just about the four years that students are in undergraduate, you know, in their undergraduate education. The beauty of campus ministry is when you begin to see students who really come to grips with the gospel of grace and what that means for all of life, and they begin to move out, you know, some in full-time ministry, many not, most not, but they begin to move out and to serve Jesus with their lives. And so Rosanna graduated from Berkeley in three years. She went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, And then she went to China to teach Greek and Hebrew at an underground seminary. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, just just incredible. And, you know, but then you have students like Tori, who who started coming to RUF in January. She, She had never been around Christianity in her entire life. Grew up in an incredibly broken home. Her her mother was a drug addict. Uh, Her parents were divorced. She was kicked out of her home when she was 15 to go live with her boyfriend. And she walks through the doors of RUF in January, having really never heard about Jesus. And she comes every week this past spring. Every Thursday night, she is there. And she's baptized in May. I mean, just, you know, and that's, that is, that's the work of Jesus. <laughs> that's redemption. So, you know, Really, I, I, am, I am grateful to just kind of be here this morning. That's a quick snippet of things. I'd love to, to kind of share more with you afterwards. If you want to get, you know, email updates and kind of prayer updates, I think there's a sheet of paper somewhere in the back, in the front, whatever your perspective is, that if you want to include your name, I'd love to just send you uh, updates on how to pray for our ministry and, and what God is doing there. So that being said... Let's transition to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Um, I was recently married. You, you know this, Mike mentioned this, to, to Katie, the eldest of daughters, the eldest of the Malone girls. And, you know, I just have to tell you that I am so glad we were finally married. I mean, dating was just exhausting. <laughs> it, it, was so, it was so tiring. And, you know, the reason why it was exhausting is because you overanalyze everything. Everything, you know, it's all about putting your best foot forward. You want them to see the best parts of you and you want to conceal the worst parts of you. 
right? And so you begin, you know, you begin to overanalyze, okay, what am I going to, what am I going to wear when I see this person? What are we going to talk about? You know, you got to have a plan for everything. Where are we going to eat? What are we going to do afterwards? What do I say if she looks at me like I'm an idiot? You know, I mean, you're just kind of overthinking everything. And it's all about putting your best foot forward. And so all of a sudden, you kind of start to become somebody that you're not. You know, I mean, you start to be interested in things that you weren't really interested in before. Oh, yeah. I love sophisticated literature, right? (laughs) Of course. You know, I love the classics, you know, or I love kind of these... um, I love that type of music. I mean, I don't like classical music. I never listen to classical music. You know, you're thinking to yourself, these things are not true. (laughs) This is exhausting. This is exhausting because dating is all about putting your best foot forward. Marriage, on the other hand, is completely different. You cannot hide, right? I mean, you know, now I'm waking up to this woman every morning, not thinking about, you know, making myself look good. Right. I'm waking up with crusty things in my eyes and and just horrendous morning breath. You know, it's a real relationship. It's a real relationship. You cannot hide. And I think that for many of us, when we think about a relationship with the God of the Bible, sometimes we think about it much more akin to a dating relationship than a marriage relationship. We think it's about me putting my best foot forward. And what I love about the Psalms is that when you come to the Psalms, you know what you find? People like you and me. People who are a mess. People who are broken. People who cannot hide. People who cannot put their best foot forward. People who struggle with pride, with bitterness, with envy, with jealousy, with fear, with worry, with doubt, with anger, with an inability to forgive. And today, what we're looking at specifically is someone who struggles with spiritual depression, spiritual dryness. You think, boy, gosh, that's a, that's a really uplifting message. Thank you for coming all the way from the West Coast <laughs> to talk about spiritual depression. No, spiritual dryness, an overwhelming sense of God's absence in their life. You know, if you know the chorus of a song, you know the song. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you're driving in your car and you pull up to the red light and you are that person who, when people pull up next to you, they turn over and they, and they start laughing because they just see you singing in your car, right? But, you know, if you know, if you know the chorus of a song, it doesn't matter how well or how poorly you know the verses. If you know the chorus, you know the song. And that's how Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 works. It's a song and it has a chorus and it appeared three times. It was in verse five and verse 11 of chapter 42 and verse five of chapter 43. Let me read it for us again. The psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Listen, the psalmist is not in a good place. He is in a dark, dark place. Why are you so disturbed? Why are you downcast? Why are you in turmoil? He's talking to himself. And what's at the root of this? And, you know, verse verse one of chapter 42, chapter 42, we get this profound imagery of a deer, you know, 
As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Listen, this is not a deer who has had his fill. This is a deer who is dying of thirst. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He is in a spiritual wasteland, a spiritual desert. The psalmist is saying, God, I am like that deer. And I'm thirsting, and I'm thirsting for you, but you are nowhere to be found. I'm crying out to you, and you are nowhere to be found. I long for you, but I do, I do not see you. I do not feel you. I do not hear you. Where are you? It seems as though God is a million miles away. I mean, who, listen, who cannot relate to this? You know, maybe you're here this morning. And you're not Christian. And you're thinking, you know, okay, all of this business about, you know, this, this, this almighty God who made all things, who called the world into being, and he's good and he's loving. That's, that's the God that you believe in? Let's just take inventory of our world for a minute. You know, how do you explain to me all of the evil, all of the suffering, all of the pain. I mean, not just, not just in the world, but in my own life. Where is God in all of this? You know, or maybe you're here this morning and you're relatively new to Christianity. You know, it's not something you necessarily grew up with or around, and you've kind of come to discover it later on in life. And, you know, when, when you first encountered Jesus, you know, it was filled with a sense of excitement, anticipation, joy, enthusiasm, and now you've begun to move into a season of discouragement and struggle. You know, where is God? You know, and I'm sure for many of you here this morning, you've, you've been around this your whole life, you know, but when you, when you open your Bible, the words on the page seem vacuous and stale. And when you pray, it feels like your words are just kind of bouncing off the ceiling, It feels as though God is a million miles away. You find yourself in a spiritual desert, a spiritual wasteland. And listen, if you do not know that this is coming, you know, I mean, this is this is the first point this morning. Spiritual dryness is inevitable. The question is not will you or will you not experience it? The question is, what do you do when it comes upon you? And, you know, if 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 you don't anticipate it, you know, this is some of you, you've, you've been here. Some of you are here right now. Some of you will be there. And if you don't anticipate it, it can be incredibly disillusioning. It's kind of like when you have your first kid. People say to you, it's going to be so wonderful. It's going to be so amazing, you know. And then you have this, this baby who's waking up at 3 a.m., you know, crying and screaming. And, and, you know, because they're hungry and they can't feed themselves. And so you you go to feed them. And as soon as you do, you don't get a thank you. They proceed to throw up right on your shirt, you know. And and you're sitting there at 3 a.m. thinking, am I the only parent who's who's struggling with this? Am I just a bad parent? And of course you're not a bad parent. No, everybody struggles with that. But that can be incredibly disillusioning if you don't know that it's coming. In many ways, spiritual dryness, spiritual depression, an overwhelming sense of God's absence in your life, will disillusion you 
if you do not anticipate it. And so the question is not, will you or will you not experience it? The question is, how do you deal with it? What's the way out of it? When you find yourself in a spiritual desert, how do you move to the oasis? To seasons of refreshment, seasons of encouragement, seasons of hope and renewal. What does that look like? Mother Teresa said this. She said, my smile is a great cloak that hides a multitude of pains. People think my faith, my hope, and my love are overflowing and that my intimacy with God and union with his will fill my heart. If only they knew. Mother Teresa said that for the last 50 years of her life, she experienced a predominant absence of God's presence. Martin Luther talked about God hiding his face from him. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a treatise called Spiritual Depression. The question is not, will you experience it? The question is, how do you deal with it? And let me just say, this is actually good news. You're saying, why is this good news? This is good news. You know why this is good news? Because when you read the biographies of heroes of the Christian faith throughout the centuries, you find that this was something they struggled with. And so the reason this is good news is because it's not something that's relegated to second-class Christians. It's something that every Christian encounters and experiences. And so how do you deal with it? How do you begin to move out of it? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. But I do have a caveat. And my caveat is this. There are 10 question marks in our English translation of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. You know what that means? It means that there are a lot of questions about this topic. There's mystery surrounding it. There's tremendous mystery surrounding it. There is not a formula that says, if this is where you are, then do this and it will fix it. But there, there are some helpful principles, I think, for us. As we look at the psalmist and as we look at his struggle with spiritual dryness, with being in the desert, in a spiritual wasteland, of navigating that, and of actually drawing near to Jesus, even in the midst of it. So what does that look like? So here's, here's the two questions for us this morning. What, how do you get in? What, what actually led into the psalmist's spiritual dryness? And what is it that leads him out? What leads into spiritual dryness? And what is it that leads out? First, what, what leads into spiritual dryness? First thing is this, the psalmist was disconnected from community. He's disconnected from community. He gives us some geographical clues about where he is, beginning in verse 4. And he says this, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng. Throng is plural, right? How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude, again, a multitude, plural, a multitude keeping festival. We, we know that Old Testament Israelites would pilgrim together three times a year to Jerusalem. Why? For festivals of worship. To be together, to pray together, to sing together. that they would would travel to Jerusalem together, 
right? As a, as a, as a body, as a group of people. But now where is the psalmist? Cause he's saying, look, I remember these things. These things I look back upon. And the question is, where is he now? And continuing down in verse six, he says this, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Now, commentators say we have no clue where Mount Mizar is, but we know where Hermon is. And Hermon is in Palestine. It's in the north. And Jerusalem is in the south. And so what's happening? The psalmist is completely disconnected from God's people. He's disconnected from community. He is doing life on his own. He is living in exile out in the middle of nowhere. Here's the point. You and I were made for relationship. We were made for relationship with God and we were made for relationship with one another. And you cannot do Christianity on your own. You must have, I must have other people in our lives that we are learning with, that we're praying with, that we're confessing with, that we're sharing with, that we're reading the Bible with. We need that. And that's why Jesus, and when you come to the New Testament, Paul talks about the church being a body, a body of people. We need other people. Now, listen, if you're here this morning and you are not Christian and you're trying to figure out if you could ever believe in Jesus, let me just say to you, you are in the right place. You might be thinking, you know, I feel so out of place here. What am, what am I doing in a church? You cannot figure out Jesus. You cannot deal with him on your own. You have to do it in the context of a body. And so keep coming, keep sitting, keep listening, keep singing, keep hearing the word preached. You're in the right place. And, you know, for others of you here this morning, you know, this is why God has given us the church. It's a gift. It's a gift of necessity. You know, could it be that if you feel like God is a million miles away, if you find yourself in a spiritual desert, could it be that you, in some ways, you're disconnected from the body? You're disconnected from the church. You're disconnected from other Christians. And I don't just mean, you know, coming on Sundays. I mean, finding a community of people that you say, this is a group of people that I'm going to give myself to. And this is a group of people that I'm going to allow to give themselves to me. You need that. And I need that. And as you begin to encounter God's people, you encounter the, the, the manifestation of Jesus himself now. The second thing is this. He's not just disconnected from community, but he's disillusioned with life. He's disillusioned with life. The psalmist says in several times throughout these two chapters, his enemies are taunting him saying, where is your God? You say that you worship the true God. You say that Yahweh is the one true God, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he's this God of covenant. Well, wait a minute. I mean, here you are in Palestine. You're living in exile. And, and guess what? Calamity has come upon you. Life has not gone very well for you. Where is God for you? 
And the taunting from the outside leads to taunting on the inside. What does the psalmist say? Verse 9 of chapter 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? And then again in verse 2 of chapter 43. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? You know, and how often is it the case for us that, that when, life, when life does not go as planned, we become suspicious of God's love toward us? When circumstances go awry, we begin to doubt God's presence. I mean, you only have to live long enough to realize that this is true. Life does not go as planned. You know, I mean, how many of you are sitting here this morning thinking, you know what? I never thought, I never thought that I would lose my spouse so early. I never thought that I'd be widowed so soon. I never thought that I'd be in such a hard marriage. God, where are you? I never thought that I'd be divorced. This is, not, this is not how I would have written the script. God, where are you? I never thought that I would bury one of my children. God, where are you? I never thought, I never thought that I would struggle so much with addiction. God, where are you? I never thought that I'd be the victim of abuse. God, where are you? I never thought that I would have to deal with this type of tragedy. I never thought that I'd hear the words that I have a terminal illness or that my spouse has a terminal illness. God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? you know, and when life does not go as planned, we become suspicious of God's grace and his love and his kindness towards us and of his presence in our lives. And we find ourselves in a spiritual wasteland, in a desert, crying out for him, but saying, God, I long for you, but I do not see you, I do not feel you, and I do not hear you. Please show up. And, you know, the question is, what do you do when you find yourself here? Because, again, you only have to live long enough to find out that life doesn't go as planned. And so what do you do? What is the way out? What's the way out of dryness? You know, I love <clears throat> what the psalmist does here because the psalmist does not start with himself. You know, how often when we find ourselves in, in, in seasons of spiritual depression saying, you know, what am I doing wrong? I, I, need to, I need to pray harder. I need to read my Bible more. I need to do this. I need to do that. And we create this long checklist <clears throat> of things that we're not doing right. But, you know, there's no confession in these two chapters. There's no confession. And so what does the psalmist do? He doesn't start with himself. He doesn't start with introspection, but he starts with God. He goes to God. That's, that's the whole thrust of the psalm. It's a prayer. He is praying, God, help. Help me. Here is where I am. Help. 
You know, John Stott puts it this way. He says, the cure for depression is neither to look in at our grief nor back to our past nor round at our problems, but away and up to the living God. Is this where you are this morning? Are you in a season of spiritual depression, an overwhelming sense of God's absence? Listen, go to him. He does not turn a deaf ear to you. He does not say to you, you know, come on, get yourself together. Kind of work up this spiritual fervor and then come to me. He says, no, come to me as you are. He is a God who welcomes you, who welcomes you in the midst of your spiritual depression. Do not live under the tyranny of your feelings. Of course, you don't feel like praying. Go to him. Go to him. It's exactly what the psalmist does. And the second thing is this. You know, he's not just a God who, who welcomes us, but he's a God who empathizes. A God who empathizes. This is where the chorus, again, is so helpful. What does he, what does he say when he cries out? He says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. My salvation and my God, the one that the psalmist looked forward to is what we look back on. The one who would come and save his people, the one who would come and rescue us. My salvation and my God. I mean, think about this. If there was anyone who has ever experienced real spiritual depression, it's Jesus. He knows your predicament better than you. Think about this. I mean, here we have the psalmist who's being taunted. Where is your God? You know, when Jesus was hung on the cross, what did they cry out to him? Look at him. He saved others and he can't even save himself. He's the king of the Jews. I mean, that, that, that wasn't a compliment. Jesus was taunted in his very death as he took his last breaths. And what did he cry out on the cross? I thirst. I thirst. I mean, here we have the psalmist saying, I'm like this deer who's dying of thirst. And then on the cross, Jesus crying out, I thirst. You know, and then you and I, in our greatest moments of spiritual depression, feel as though we have lost God's presence. We feel as though we have lost God's presence. Guess what? For you, Christian, Jesus did. He actually lost the presence of the Father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, C.S. Lewis, whose wife, you know, C.S. Lewis married way later in life. His wife died extremely early. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, though our Feelings for God may come and go. His love for us does not. I love that. Though our feelings for God may come and go, his love for us does not. And the truth is that even in your darkest moments of wondering where God is and maybe feeling as though your affections for him are like a dry riverbed, 
The good news of the gospel are that his affections for you abound. They're not like a dry riverbed. They're like a raging river that cannot be contained. His love for you runs deep and it is unceasing. And regardless of where you find yourself and your affections for him, his affections for you are unwavering. This is good news. This is good news. This is hopeful news. He's a God who welcomes us in the midst of our spiritual depression. He's a God who empathizes with us. Jesus tasted of spiritual depression in a way that you and I never will. But, you know, we want more than just a God who can say, you know what, I can relate. We don't just want a God who can empathize. We want a God who can do something about our predicament. A God, we want action, not just empathy. You know, again, the, the chorus is just so helpful. What does he say? Hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. You know, hope is such an essential ingredient to weathering any season of darkness and despair. Because, you know, hope, hope pushes us to look forward, to not just see the present, to not just live in light of the present, but to see the future, right? You know, I love, I love going to the beach, and I love coming here to Vero because, you know, one of, the th- one of my favorite things to do is to sit on the beach and to watch storms move in, you know, to kind of see these ominous, dark clouds and to see them begin to roll in. And, you know, if, if that was every day, all day, I don't think anybody would live here. You know, nobody lives here for the clouds, you know. I mean, it's, in one sense, it's beautiful to watch. But if that's all you lived under, if that's all it was going to be, I mean, that would just be utter, utter darkness. You know, part of the beauty of being here is that the clouds always roll away. The darkness does not last forever. The darkness does not last forever. You know, in the heart of the battle, in spiritual discouragement, in spiritual despair, spiritual depression, is, you know, do we view the future through the dim light of the present? Things are hard now and they always will be. God seems absent now and it always will seem that way. Or do we view the present through the bright light of the future? You know what the future is for you, Christian? You know how the Bible ends? Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter, the last thing that God put into his written word. Do you know what it says? Jesus is going to come again. And he is going to make all things new. And when he does, we will see him face to face that we will sit with him and we will feast with him and we will drink with him and we will eat with him. We will experience a nearness to him unlike you could ever fathom. That is the end of the story. You know, that while darkness and spiritual depression may be the case for you now, for you, Christian, it will not always be. You will see your king and you will see your friend and you will see your redeemer face to face and you will commune with him in unhindered intimacy and fellowship. And my hope for us today, for you and for me, is that God would give us grace to hold tightly to these things, to see, to see the present 
through the bright light of the future. That no matter where you find yourself now or maybe in the coming future, no matter what kind of spiritual desert you find yourself in, where God seems absent in your life, that we would look forward to the day when Jesus will indeed come again. And we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Father, thank you that though our feelings for you may come and go, your love for us does not. Thank you for the way that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus tells us that these things are true. Father, I know that there are some here this morning who are really wrestling with these things and need to know that your love for them is unwavering, that you will indeed come again, that they will see you face to face. And so I pray that you would bring comfort and hope. I know that there are others of us here this morning who are in the midst of of an oasis, of, of, a, of a deep sense of your nearness and presence in our life. And I thank you for that. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And Jesus, we thank you for your promise to indeed come again. We pray this through Christ. Amen.